Thank you so much, uh, Deacon Darren, and thank you so much as well to our sister Lacey and the music team for leading us in our service earlier. Hello, everyone. Uh, I pray that you are well. Uh, as we have just read the Bible, I'd like to ask you to help by uh, keeping your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 5. And there is also an outline in the e-bulletin, which you can download. And I pray that that will be helpful for you to follow today's sermon. Would you please join me first in prayer? Let's go to God. Oh Lord God, please help us to know your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. And for you we wait all day long. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. As we begin, uh, let me just ask you, in your mind, when you think of the model leader, right? when you think of the model leader that you will willingly follow with all your heart, no questions asked, who would that person be? Okay, so form uh, in your mind, who would be that leader that you will follow into better? Well, so I was curious, what do people look for in a leader? And so I went online and uh, used Google to find, right, to find out. And I found that Fortune magazine publishes an annual list of the world's 50 greatest leaders. And the last list was published last year in May. Right? And in this latest list, uh, Jacinda Ardern, right, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, topped the list. Okay? You may know that she had just visited Singapore uh, last month as part of a trade mission, right? So what is it that makes Miss Arden so admired as a leader? Allow me to read this accolade from the, the article. The Prime Minister is considered one of the visionaries of the future. Her efforts shined during the COVID-19 pandemic, where Arden took drastic measures to control the spread of the virus, resulting in just 26 deaths in New Zealand. To show her solidarity with the people, she led her cabinet to take a six-month 20% pay cut. Okay, so it seems that human resource experts suggest that there are five essential qualities that every good leader must have, that people look for. Okay, and the first one is communicating frequently. The second one, having a vision for the future. The third is showing empathy for their followers or employees. And the fourth is holding themselves accountable. And the fifth is showing gratitude by acknowledging the contributions of others. See, I think Miss Arden actually fulfills some of these qualities. And everyone is looking for such a leader. Why do we all look for a good leader? I think it's because we know that our world is in a mess, right? whether it's from COVID or from the mess that you and I are creating in this world. And so the Lord Jesus rightly warns us that in this world, in the world, you will have trouble, you have tribulation. And so who will show mercy to God's suffering people? Where is God's leader who will make all things right again. Well, the Lord himself answers that. He says, But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
See, Jesus, God's model leader, has shown us God's kindness, God's mercy, and God's generosity in his incarnation, death, and resurrection. Today, we are looking at Nehemiah chapter 5. Right? And in Nehemiah 5, we'll see how God also used Nehemiah as his leader in his day to meet the needs of his afflicted people at the time of war rebuilding in Jerusalem. And how Nehemiah really was a foreshadow of God's model leader in the Lord Jesus. Now, in, in terms of context, just before this, in chapter 4, Nehemiah and the Jews were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem right, in the face of opposition from outside. And this was led by Sambalat and Tobiah, uh, who plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So Nehemiah led the Jewish people to pray to God, and they posted a guard against them 24 hours a day. And God frustrated the enemy's plan. The trouble from outside has been resolved, has been dealt with. But now the trouble from within is about to begin. So here in chapter 5, verses uh, 1 to 13, we will see Nehemiah the Reformer showing us what it's like to fear God and show mercy. So trouble within, we read in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. This great outcry, or a loud cry of distress, is due to an internal strife among the fellow Jews. It comprises a series of complaints that they have against one another. And Nehemiah now arises as a reformer to meet these challenges. Notice here that their wives are being named as part of the complainants, likely because the wives are more aware of the domestic financial situation. Their husbands may be too distracted by the rebuilding project, they are too oblivious to notice the dwindling food supply in the pantry or the diminishing bank account. Okay, and this is pretty much what happens in my family, right, in my household. My prudent wife is the one who holds the purse strings and she's much more aware of our financial situation than I am. Okay, if you give it to me, I'll squander it all away. The outcry uh, of the people is expressed in words from verses 2 onwards. Okay, so maybe let's read this together. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, let's read together, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for our king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Notice the words in yellow. Three times it's mentioned, right? There were those who said. And this clearly spells out to us that there are three groups of disgruntled people here. Different social classes have all been affected by these circumstances. 
And the first group are the landless, right? and they, they are pleading, let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Because these landless people rely on work, right? on wages for their basic sustenance. But their work on the wall yields them no pay, and so now they have no money. The second group, they are the landowners who are saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain. They had they to mortgage their properties for loans in order to buy grain in these hard times. And the third and last group are the poorer landowners. They are saying, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. See, for them, mortgaging the properties isn't enough. They even had to sell their own children to, be, to, to become slaves. You may ask, why not sell their properties instead? Perhaps they were holding on to the hope that by keeping the property, there's at least a chance for them to turn their fortunes around and they can redeem their children. There is a Chinese saying, right? Right? So it translates into English as while the green hills remain, there is no lack of firewood. There will be no lack of firewood. Or another way to put it, where there's life, there's hope. But for these poor landowners, they have found that it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and vineyards. Even the hills are gone for them. Their properties have been lost to creditors who have seized them as collaterals for their loans. And so what are some of the causes of their predicament? Well, firstly, they have large families to feed. And this usually isn't an issue, right? Because in agricultural uh, settings, societies, more people means more hands in the field. And so you can have a greater yield. But the problem is we read in the next verse, because of the famine. And therefore, this means that there's a shortage of food for everyone, uh, especially for those with more mouths to feed. Finally, there is also the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. There's a royal property tax imposed by the Persian king. And so the people came to, to Nehemiah for help. They approached him first because he's their governor, right? And also because it was his wall-building project that had put a pause to the agri agricultural activities. So in a way, he was a reason for their hardship. But they weren't really complaining about this because they understood that these are special times. They are special circumstances. Rather, it was the fact that their own Jewish brothers, the nobles and officials, were adding on to their heavy loads by imposing interest and confiscating their land for the loans that they owe them. And we see these charges, we hear them from Nehemiah's mouth in verses uh, 7 onwards. Verse 7, he says, You're exacting interest, each from his brother. See, the richer people were committing usury or charging exorbitant interest rates on loans. And so they are actually forcing their fellow Jews into slavery. We see this in verse 8. You even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Now, these two things, right, they're actually the two things that are explicitly prohibited in Leviticus chapter 25. Shall we read these verses together? 
If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be to you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. See, if you look at this verses, it seems like charging interest in itself wasn't wrong, especially if you are running a legitimate reason, a legitimate business, right? Otherwise, people will take advantage of you uh, if you are too kind to them. But what was wrong here is actually the charging of interest from an impoverished brother who is unable to support himself already. It literally, in the Hebrew, it actually reads, a brother whose hands falter, his hands are too weak. Right? So rather than exerting our rights as a creditor, the fellow Israelite is to be a kinsman redeemer for this brother, to strengthen his brother's hands. Not to take advantage of him as a slave, but to treat him as a hired worker, to, to care for him, until all debts are cancelled in the year of Jubilee. See, the emphasis here is on the brotherhood of God's people. Israel was to treat one another as brothers and sisters with respect and compassion, especially those among them who are poor and downtrodden. And I think this is a, this is a timeless principle for us today as well. As God's new covenant people, we are also brothers and sisters in God's family. Right? God is our heavenly father, and the Lord Jesus is our elder brother. And so Nehemiah exhorts his brothers in verse 10, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Stop the wrong practice. And then in verse 11, return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Restore their properties to them. So how do we apply this today? How should you and I treat one another as God's family? Remember when the pandemic first hit us in early 2020? Right? Many people thought that it would blow over very quickly. And now we all know how wrong we all are, right? These two, three years have turned out, as in Nehemiah's day, to be a unique time with special circumstances. And you may remember how that year, our church leaders put their ear to the ground and heard of how many in our church family are losing their jobs or they are making losses in their businesses. And so drawing the principle from Galatians 6 verse 10 to do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, we established the COVID Emergency Relief Fund to help members and regulars tight over this extreme time. This is just as we were also starting to raise funds for our building in Tengah. But the most admirable factor for me personally is this, 
is the anonymity behind this whole application process. We're helping brothers and sisters in need without drawing attention to who they are out of respect for them and for the sake of their honour. I'm sure that there are many other untold stories among us here in ARPC right, of how people showed love and compassion to one another during COVID-19. And we may not know this, but I assure you that God knows and He will reward you. You may have also seen uh, one of these many iterations of this 10-year-old meme. Right? So apparently this year is 10 years old. And the, the original creator is a business professor. He set out to try to show the difference between equal opportunities and equal outcomes. Okay? Or we might say equality and justice or equity. Some actually go further and they suggest, why not just remove the fence? Lah? Right? Then there'll be liberation, everyone get to see. But I think the original point he makes is still quite valid, it's quite clear. Right? That given limited resources, there are only three boxes there, we aren't helping the poor if everyone gets the same amount of resources. If our goal is justice, then the poor should get more. Of course, apart from financial issues, there are other issues of inequality or injustice in the church. Right? Some brothers and sisters may need other forms of support due to mental or physical health issues or due to weakness, uh, weaknesses due to ageing. So some who are stronger in one area may find ourselves weaker in another. How can you and I support one another in these areas of weaknesses? Let me give you one very trivial test. Right? So how many of you here actually drive to church? Okay, not many. Interesting. Okay, so for those of you who drive, like I do, right, you know that most of us park along Arcadia Road, right? So I, I use Google Maps right, to plot the distance from our building here in 25 Adam Road to Arcadia Road. Okay, and in case you're wondering, it's actually only 350 meters away. Right? It's just to the start of the road. Lah. But if you come slightly later and you end up parking all the way in, it can actually go up to a kilometer or even more. Okay? Right now, nobody is competing with us for parking space. Okay, but you can see next door, right? Our neighboring church, Trinity, is almost complete. Okay? So get ready for more cars. Well, if you are younger or fitter, and usually you arrive earlier, I wonder if you mind if you are going to be parking further in Right, so that those with mobility issues can then park closer to the, to the start of the road. Okay? So I wonder, would you, would you actually mind doing that? Okay, we might reason, right? It's my right, because I always come early, that's why I get to park closer to the end of the road. But are we willing to forego our right for the sake of our brothers and sisters? Another, another example I give you. As Singapore opens up, right, we, we rejoice and we thank God for that. And we're resuming in-person uh, church meetings. And some among us may be more hesitant to come back right, because of health or other concerns. Do you and I take time to carefully listen to their concerns? Or do we simply dismiss them as being paranoid? I thank God that many of our discipleship groups have started to resume meeting in person. And if you have not, 
uh, I can encourage you to do so. But in this next few months, as people continue to struggle over these concerns, I rejoice that many of our DGs do continue with some form of Zoom and physical meeting hybrid. Okay? And it is hard. I know because I do it. Right? It is hard to engage with people in person and at the same time with people online. Okay? But if we, if we really love our brothers and sisters who have concerns for the time being, I'm sure that we can all make the effort right, to accommodate them. So these are just some examples for us to ponder on. I'm sure you can think of many other ways to help one another out as a church, in your DGs, or in your ministries. And of course, as I say this, as leaders and pastors, we must take the lead in doing so. And so if you are wondering why today I seem to be speaking slightly slower, right, something that I've got to remind myself in preaching is actually to speak slower deliberately, so that our sister Anna can interpret in sign language for our brothers and sisters who are deaf or hard of hearing. But, you know, by nature, when people are nervous like I am on stage, we tend to speak faster. And so it's actually a good reminder for those of us who are leading up front uh, to be aware as well. Nehemiah, as the leader, also took the lead in showing compassion and care. He says in verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Brothers and sisters, when we hear of injustices happening in Ukraine or Afghanistan, sometimes anger can be a righteous response. But before, we, before Nehemiah took action in anger to confront the officials and nobles, he first did some soul-searching or self-reflection. Right? Notice the sequence here. Before we point the finger at perpetrators of injustice, we would do well to first reflect on ourselves, to remove the lock from our own eyes in the way that we act within our own households and workplaces, the way that we treat our migrant domestic workers, our employees and subordinates. Literally, Nehemiah said, my heart counseled with myself. And as he does so, he became convicted of his personal culpability in this. He says in verse 10, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Nehemiah and his own family have been complicit in giving loans to people as well. Though perhaps he's not been charging these high interest rates uh, or forcing people into slavery when they can't pay. But he realizes now that in special times like this, under these extreme circumstances, perhaps he should be offering gifts rather than loans. And so even as Nehemiah corrects the nobles and officials, he relates himself to them as part of the guilty party. Nehemiah is a model in showing mercy. Although he has every right, he has every right to give the loans and expect to charge interests. What drives Nehemiah not to do so? 
Well, we see his concern uh, in what he says in verse 9. The thing that you are doing isn't good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Even as Nehemiah calls God's people to fear God, he himself also fears God. But the unjust practices of these nobles and officials is causing difficulties and hardship to their fellow Jews. It is showing their disregard for the fear of God. It invites disdain from the Gentile nations and brings disrepute, a bad name to God among the nations. Essentially, they were enslaving their brothers and sisters who have just been freed from exile in these nations. Israel was to be a light to draw the nations in to God, but their present actions are no different from these other nations, and indeed even drew the ridicule from these pagans. To their credit, these nobles and officials agreed, and they said, we will restore this and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. This is a painful decision to make for them. Right? It comes at great cost. These nobles are complying with Nehemiah's order to cancel all the debts and return all the properties for the sake of their suffering brothers. They are willing to do so. And to seal this deal, Nehemiah caught the priests, perhaps as witnesses, and made them swear to do as they had promised. He symbolically shook off the fold of his garments and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who doesn't keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. See, through his humble model and his faithful uh, exaltation, Nehemiah, the reformer, led the people of Israel, the Jews, in a reform of their social justice system. He was a model to them in the fear of God and the showing of mercy uh, to others. Next, in verses 14 to 19, uh, we read how Nehemiah, the governor himself, also fears God and models generosity. Continues to be a model for God's people in verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver, even their servants lauded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. See, the fear of God continues to motivate and direct Nehemiah's actions as he leads God's people. So his rule as governor was remarkably different from his predecessors. The former governors, they laid heavy burdens on the people. Nehemiah relieved them of these burdens. He even forgoes his daily allowance of the governor, the, the food allowance, which is all well within his rights. 
And this is because the daily ration would have cost the people 40 shekels of silver, which would have been a large sum of money that would increase the hardship of God's people. In verse 16, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Nehemiah participated diligently in the building of the wall, along with all his servants. Both the governor and his staff didn't lord it over the people, but instead they served alongside them. They didn't procure land, they didn't profiteer off other people's poverty by buying over their property. Instead of making profits as a governor, Nehemiah willingly suffered losses. In verse 17, Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I didn't demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Now, you can imagine it's not very, uh, it's not very cheap, right, to, uh, to provide daily meals for more than 150 men. And Nehemiah is entitled to claim food allowance for this. I don't know whether he needs to produce receipts, okay, but certainly he was allowed to claim for this food. But Nehemiah had compassion he was careful not to burden uh, the impoverished people. And so he generously decides to pay for his own meals as well as for all the civil servants working under him from his own account. So we can say, right, we can conclude that Nehemiah is quite wealthy and that's why he can afford to do so. Before, as the cupbearer to the king, he was a trusted government official, uh, perhaps somewhat like our Prime Minister's principal private secretary. And now he's risen to be the governor of Judah. It is only right that he gets the appropriate recompense for his position. But he's also doing uh, more than his fair share of work. Unlike the former governors of Judah, and yet he's not demanding his rights. Now, during national service, we used to loathe the skyvers, right? you know, the ones who lace around uh, and watch as others do the hard work of digging the trenches or building basha tents. And we like to say that they are just using their eye power. Right? But it is not as if Nehemiah was, being, was skiving in Judah or using his eye power to look at the people building the wall. Instead, he's rolling up his sleeves to take part in the work. He's getting his hands dirty along with the people. As governor, Nehemiah may feel well justified to get a good pay to spend on himself and or to oversee the work without lifting a finger himself. But the fear of God and his concern from his, for his people didn't allow him to do so. Instead, he was a model of diligence and generosity. And in all this, Nehemiah didn't seek the approval or adulation of men. He did not seek a good, word a good work appraiser from the king. Rather, as he prays in verse 19, Remember for my good, O my God, 
all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah looks to God alone for his reward. He serves a higher master. He leads for an audience of one. And so in our leadership, or more accurately, our service for God over those that God has placed under our care, how can you and I forego our rights and become an example of generosity? This weekend, we celebrate Mother's Day. We remember our biological mothers, adoptive mothers, foster mothers, and other mother figures in our lives. There's no better model of generosity towards us than our mothers. You all agree? At least I pray that this has been the experience of most of us. Right? They're ever generous in their comforts and compassion for us. As our sister Lacey shared earlier, as she almost broke down, right, they spend sleepless nights caring for, for children as we fall sick, forsaking their own rights, even their needs, like sleep, to feed us, to clothe us, to nurse us back to health, while we were young and even now when we are older. And so it is quite apt that God likens himself to a, as a mother to his people in passages like Isaiah 66, verse 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And in Isaiah 49, verse 15, he says, can a, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even this may forget, yet I will not forget you. So you and I must recognize also that even our mothers have flaws. Sometimes they may fail in their human weaknesses and in their human sinful nature. We mustn't put any human authority or mortal leaders on the pedestal. They will inevitably let us down. As the Lord says here in Isaiah 49, even mothers may forget their children, but God will never forget his children. Nehemiah, the governor, fears God and models generosity. And yet, in spite of all his recorded virtues and achievements, we will see by the end of the book of Nehemiah that his reforms, together with Ezra, eventually will fail to re rebuild God's people. Divisions between the people remain, and disobedience of God's law persists. In the end, Nehemiah is but a type or a foreshadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's people continue to look forward since the day of Nehemiah to a better leader who can unite and reform us. And you see that the issues that Nehemiah faced during his governorship will resurface again in the early church. Okay, I'll give you three examples. In Acts chapter 6, there was a complaint by the Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking disciples against the Hebrew-speaking leaders over the oversight. Right? They forgot to, to provide meals uh, for their widows, the poor people of their day. And so the apostles appointed seven men, faithful and spirit-filled men, who were nominated uh, by the Grecians. And the end result was the increase of the word of God and multiplication of disciples in Jerusalem as people saw how wise the leaders were. 
In Acts 11, when the prophet Agabus foretold of a famine throughout the Roman Empire, the brothers in Antioch determined, each one according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Paul and Barnabas were sent to deliver this fund. And at that time, the mutual love of Christian brothers and sisters displays Christ's glory to the world, and Christ's church just grows and grows from there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul forewent his right to receive material support from the Corinthian church that he had planted. He declares, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. His motivation is this, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in his blessings. See, like Nehemiah, Paul looks to God for his final reward. All these apostles and early disciples, they were looking to and imitating the perfect model of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, let us read together uh, Paul's familiar and yet challenging words in Philippians 2. And also, as we read it, let's reflect and see how we can uh, follow this example as well. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus is God's perfect servant and leader. In his incarnation, he forsook his divine right and his glory to took on human form as a lowly servant. In his death, he humbled himself in obedience to his Father, and submitted to humiliation on a cross. His resurrection and exaltation are God's vindication and reward for his faithfulness. So if we come back to the five essential qualities of a good leader, you may identify many of these qualities in Nehemiah and in the apostles, but this man weren't perfect in every way. Everyone continues to look for a model leader to lead us, but there is no need to to look around anymore. There's no such perfect person apart from Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. The Lord Jesus has shown to us sinners God's mercy and generosity in his incarnation, death and resurrection. So as we consider Christ's mercy to us, may God help us to offer our lives in worship of him in service of him. May we be asking God to take us and make us like Jesus in fearing him and loving one another. Let's go to God in prayer together.
our almighty and loving God. We bless you for the gifts of your word. Thank you that your son Jesus is our perfect king, showing us your mercy and generosity that we so don't deserve. We pray now for the grace to believe what we have just heard and to live in lives that will honour you above all. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.